You've got shit. I've got shit. We've all got shit. So let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions, and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. If you're new to the podcast, some context for you. I've gotten a ton of value out of doing group therapy and watching others process their shit. In group, I can see other people's patterns and behaviors much more clearly because they aren't my patterns and behaviors, but rather they're adjacent to mine. It's such a relief. I want to share this relief with you via this podcast, wherein I practice skills while actually in the thick of shit. Each episode, I typically do an introduction and provide some context. Then I play a recording of me actively dealing with shit. This isn't me talking about psychology or theories. I'm actually in distress, having strong emotions and strong urges. You're going to hear me crying, angry, numb. But my intention is always to move through an emotion, never to stay there. So stick with me and we'll actually come out on the other side by the end of the episode. Alrighty, let's hop to it. Welcome, welcome. This is Let's Therapize That Shit, coming to you live, except not at all. It's pre-recorded. <laughs> uh, I am still sick. I've had, I'm guessing it's bronchitis for the last week. Coughing a ton. Lucky for you, I can edit out all of my coughs. Unlucky for me, every time I talk about coughing, it makes me cough. So, great fun. Anywho, uh, before I forget, I want to shout out to my Patreon uh, patrons. Patreon patrons? Is that a thing? It doesn't matter. Um, Thank you to Ruth and Anne for supporting me on Patreon. You guys make it possible for me to host this so that other people can actually access it, which is, of course, the entire point. Uh, If you're interested in supporting me as well, the link is in the description. It makes a massive impact on my ability to keep this podcast going. There's a few different levels. You can be a metaphor mixer, an emotion combo platter, a dialectic groupie, or a wise mind wizard. So go check it out. All right. What's been going on with me? Thank you for asking. Uh, I've been doing exposure therapy, specifically DBTPE, which stands for Dialectic Behavioral Therapy Prolonged Exposure, for seven months now, which is why I haven't really wanted to edit podcast episodes and get more of them posted. I already have to listen to myself for an hour a day and I'm, well, sick of my own voice. That being said, I'm still recording content and I have at least 20 episodes worth of content in the hopper ready to go. So this this is the only episode standing in the way because once this one's done, I can do other episodes and I'm determined to keep at it, which brings us to today's episode. 
some brief orientation. Most of the skills I reference are from the DBT manual by Marsha Linehan. As I said just a second ago, DBT stands for Dialectic Behavioral Therapy and is my therapy type of choice. The DBT manual is linked in the description, both in PDF form and where you can buy a hard copy. Whenever I'm quoting the DBT manual or really anyone else's work other than my own, I turn on a bit of reverb sound effect so that I sound like I'm at a planetarium or a planetarium bathroom more accurately. The bulk of the episode that you're about to hear was recorded on April 2nd, 2022, and I am recording this commentary on October 23rd, 2022, so about six and a half months later. And in the recording I'm about to play for you, I start off by explaining what exposure is. I get into the weeds a little bit. So if you want the short version, I'll tell you straight up, there's a link in the description to a graphic of an exposure form. So you can go take a look at it. It's a lot easier than me trying to describe it verbally, but that doesn't stop me from trying, mind you, because that's what I do in the recording. (laughs) But seeing the form will probably help it all make sense. I have both a blank version of the form posted as well as a version that I filled out with the information that I gathered in this recording. So I'm going to explain this a lot more in the recording, but I want to preface it with saying that The thing I'm doing exposure to is reading my parents' newsletters that they send out. And I'm not going to read the newsletter in the recording because I think that's private and personal to them. But I do mention that there are Bible verses included in their newsletter and that I take issue with them. And I purposely did not include the text of those verses in this episode because the skills I'm using really have nothing to do with the specific verses that I object to. The theology behind those verses really don't matter. So I mentioned that there are verses that I don't like, but I choose not to mention the content or reference of those verses. Another thing to note, in the original version of this recording that you're about to hear, there were a lot of very long pauses. And I cut them down quite a bit because the episode would have been three hours long otherwise. But I want to make something clear. Whenever I say a sentence like, I'm practicing accepting fill in the blank, In reality, I sit there with that thought, with that statement ringing in my ears for 10 to 15 seconds, sometimes up to 30. And I cut most of those out because they don't make for a great listening experience. And after all, this is a podcast. But I wanted to clarify that what you're about to hear goes about 25% faster than it actually took me to do it because of how many long pauses I took. Some people, hi Ruth, would like me to keep the pauses in. I'm choosing not to because I don't like listening to them myself. It's just a lot of silence. And I figure if people want to follow along and do their own exposure while I'm doing mine, that's what the pause button is for. That being said, if a lot of people (laughs) write in and tell me, leave the pauses in, I can absolutely do that in future episodes. So hint, hint, write in, tell me what you think. And a final caveat before we dive in. The emotion of disgust is a big part of today's episode. So I'm going to be talking about what causes disgust and what body sensations come up when feeling disgust, which means that if you have trouble hearing about bodily fluids, tread lightly. I'll do a warning before I mention something, but I also want to give that warning at the top of the episode so you know what you're signing up for. Alrighty, without further ado, here is past joy. Take it away. 
So I've been doing exposure for, we're heading into the third week now. And there's two different types of exposure that I've been doing. Imaginal exposure is exposure to a memory. So I have the memory already selected and I tell the story of that memory in as much detail as I can remember in my therapy session. And that is recorded. And then every day between that therapy session and the next therapy session, I listen back to that recording. And that is my imaginal exposure. And then for in vivo exposure, in vivo means living. So like throughout my life, just exposure that I do kind of out in the world. The first thing that I've chosen here is to do exposure to my parents' newsletters that they send out because it's something that I avoid. I don't read them when they send them. And yeah, I have a lot of strong judgments and emotions and whatnot around their newsletters. Every time I do exposure, I fill out a form to track my emotions, my urges, my dissociation, etc. And that is a very important component of doing exposure. The form consists of four sections. The first is the probability and costs estimates, which asks, what's the worst thing that could happen in this situation? Not like what the objective worst thing is. Like to somebody outside of the situation, they might say, oh, if you know a, a meteor fell out of the sky and hit you, that would objectively be the worst thing that could happen. It's more like, what is the worst thing for me? The thing that I'm afraid might happen, the thing that would cause me the most distress. And for each of those things I write down, there's space for three of them. Before I do the exposure, I put down how likely it is that this worst thing will happen. And I answer that also after exposure on a scale of zero to 100. And then I ask the question, how bad would it be if this worst thing actually happened? And I answer that before I do the exposure and then after I do the exposure. And the final question is, did this happen? Yes or no? Kind of the point here is to actually identify the things I'm worried about happening. Because a lot of time I avoid things because that's bad. That feels bad. I don't want to do that. That feels bad. And it's this very kind of reptilian brain reacting to something that it perceives as scary. And there's something really powerful about actually naming what that scary thing is and then examining how likely it is that that will happen, how bad it would be if it happened, and then did it actually happen? And those questions really get at checking the facts. Like it forces my brain to check the facts. It is totally possible for me to think a horrible thing is going to happen, think it would be absolutely terrible if it happened, and stop there. Like for example, I have a fear of heights. So what's the worst thing that could happen if I'm, say, I don't know, up on a bridge or an observation lookout point or something? The worst thing would be that I fall from that height. How likely is it? Gee, I don't know. My brain thinks it's very likely. <laughs> you know, my brain thinks it's like 80% likelihood that you will fall from this great height. How bad would it be if this happened? Oh, like 100. There's a hike I did in Utah, Angel's Landing, where there are signs all over the place. It's like, there's a 2000 foot sheer drop right next to the trail. Not like right next to like 10 feet away. Literally the trail is at the edge of the drop. If you get step off the trail, you are over the ledge. So it would be a hundred if that happened. And then the last question is, did it actually happen? No. And what that does is it rewires my brain to pay attention to 
when the thing I'm afraid of happening doesn't happen. And it helps me adjust my probability estimate. It's like, hey, Joy, you did do that hike and you didn't fall from it. So it wasn't a 100% likelihood that you would fall. It wasn't a certainty. You survived it. Great. So in addition to the probability and cost estimates, there's also questions about my subjective units of distress, my SUDs, urge to commit suicide, urge to self-harm, urge to quit therapy, urge to use substances, and the degree to which I am dissociating. And I answer all of those before I do the exposure, my peak levels in the middle of the exposure, and then answer all of those for after the exposure. And then the next section is specific emotions and radical acceptance. So I check in before I do the exposure on my levels of sadness, fear, anger, guilt, shame, disgust, joy, and then also radical acceptance. So I do all of that before, check in, put down my level out of 100, and then I do it again after the exposure and track all of those emotions. And the final section is asking, what did you learn during this exposure task? And typically what I'll use the what did you learn section for is to identify my thoughts that I had while doing exposure. Because my thoughts tell me a lot about what I'm afraid is going to happen, what I'm worried about, what am I assuming, blah, blah, blah. So as I was saying a while ago now, reading my parents' newsletters that they send out about once a month is part of my exposure. And I've been having a really hard time with this. I'm reading from my what did you learn during this exposure task field here. A lot of disgust comes up around the way my parents phrase things. I have the thought that the way they phrase things make it impossible to refute or argue. It feels bad in my body. I have a lump in my throat reading about the work that my parents are doing. The last day I did this, a couple days ago, I experienced this really deep, deep despair. And I likened it to feeling like I'm floating out in space in a spacesuit, untethered from everything, floating away forever. There's no way for me to change my trajectory. There's no way to move closer to anything, no way to die, just waiting for death. So clearly I'm having a reaction to the contents of these newsletters, which are basically just them sharing with the recipients of the newsletter, what they're up to, what they've been working on, just kind of what is up in their lives. And I have a lot of reactions to that. I'm adding a lot of meaning to it. So this week, my therapist suggested that we add radical acceptance as part of the exposure task. So I read the newsletter and then I do radical acceptance around it. And that those two things together create the exposure. So when I do my afters, like I check in after on my sadness, disgust, anger, all of those things, it's after I've done both of those things. I've read the newsletter and done acceptance. So I thought I would do that here. I'm not going to share the contents of the newsletter because I think it's private for my parents and stuff. Really, and this was tricky, right? Because I'm like, what do I do exposure to? Um, Do I, am I doing exposure to specific phrases? What do I do acceptance to? Like, what am I accepting here? Because as we've learned, I'm going to be reading here from Distress Tolerance Handout 11A in the DBT manual. These are factors that interfere with radical acceptance. Radical acceptance is not approval, compassion, love, passivity, or against change. So I'm going to read that again slightly differently. Radical acceptance is not approval. Radical acceptance is not compassion. 
Radical acceptance is not love. Radical acceptance is not passivity. Radical acceptance is not against change. So that's what it's not. Now here are a list of factors that interfere with acceptance. One, you don't have the skills for acceptance. You don't know how to accept really painful events and facts. Two, you believe that if you accept a painful event, you are making light of it or are approving of the facts and that nothing will be done to change or prevent the future painful events. I'm going to read that one again because I think that one's a big deal. This is, again, a factor that interferes with acceptance. You believe that if you accept a painful event, you are making light of it or are approving of the facts and that nothing will be done to change or prevent future painful events. Put another way, a factor that interferes with acceptance is believing that by accepting a painful event, it means you're like, oh, it's totally fine that that happened. And it's okay that that continues to happen. And it's fine if this happens forever and nothing is done to change it. I'm okay. I'm totally okay with all of that. That is not what acceptance is. And then the third factor that interferes with acceptance is emotions get in the way. Unbearable sadness. And I put a little uh, carrot in there. Nearly unbearable sadness. Anger at the person or group that caused the painful event. Rage at the injustice of the world. Overwhelming shame about who you are. Guilt about your own behavior. So those are the ones that are included in the DBT manual. And then there's a space for other. And this is one I wrote down myself. A lack of real understanding of what you're accepting. So that is another factor that interferes with acceptance. A lack of real understanding of what you're accepting. And I've used this analogy a lot about like you wake up the morning of your wedding day, if you're Alanis Morissette, and it's raining. And you have the thought, fuck, my wedding is ruined. That is not a thing to do acceptance around. Like I wouldn't practice acceptance around my wedding is ruined because that's not a fact. It's a thought I had. I had the thought my wedding is ruined. I could practice accepting that. Actually, that is a fact. I did have that thought, which is factually what happened. And it makes sense to have that thought. If we say it non-judgmentally, because ruined is a judgment, it would be my wedding is not going to go the way I wanted it to go. Like if I wanted it to be sunny so that we can have an outdoor wedding and now it's raining, so I'm not going to have the wedding I wanted to have. So practicing acceptance around my wedding is ruined will only only make things worse. Like that's not a fact. I could practice acceptance around, I had the thought my wedding is ruined and I could practice acceptance around the fact that my wedding is not going to go the way I thought it was going to go. I need to come up with different analogies than this because, ugh. So that's where a lack of real understanding of what you're accepting, like I think that's a huge deal because when I started looking at these newsletters, the first thought I had was, okay, so what do I need to practice? Like I didn't know what to practice acceptance around because I have a lot of thoughts. Like I had the thought that their faith is a zero sum game. Like it's impossible. It's impossible for me to achieve. Like I have that thought. So do I practice acceptance around the fact that it's impossible for me to achieve the faith that they describe? Well, I mean, that's not a fact because there's not a lot of facts about the future. Like, I don't know. So really I can practice acceptance around this is what my parents say in their newsletter. I can practice acceptance around this is the thought I had about what my parents say in their newsletter. 
I can practice acceptance around the emotion that comes up. Like, yes, it is true that I had the emotion of disgust come up. I'm like watching myself resist their beliefs. And I'm like, so I don't really want to accept their beliefs. <laughs> like, I actually don't. And by accept, not like accept for myself. Like, I don't want to, I'm not saying that I, that I resist accepting their faith. You know, it's more that I resist accepting that that is what their faith is and that that is the way they practice their faith. I'm noticing a lot of resistance coming up, which is great because this is a note that I wrote down from um, my original DBT instructor. When you're not able to accept something, you can accept that you're not able to accept it. So this resistance that I have against accepting that this is what their faith is and this is what they say about their faith, I can accept that I don't accept that. I can accept that I'm resisting because I am in fact resisting. That's a fact. So what would it look like to actually accept this? Okay. So what I'm going to do next is I'm going to fill out my exposure form for this exposure of reading my parents' newsletter. Okay. What is the worst thing that could happen in this situation? Strong feelings of disgust come up. Feel sick to my stomach. So I'm doing this before. So I'm filling out the before parts of each of these questions. So before I do exposure, I think that the likelihood of having strong feelings of disgust come up while I'm in exposure is 80. I think it's pretty certain that I will feel disgusted when I'm doing this. How bad would it be if this happened? How bad would it be if I have strong feelings of disgust come up and feel sick to my stomach? Oh, 60, I think, out of 100. What's another worst thing that could happen? Have the thought that I'm insane and that I can't trust myself. Or my gut, rather. How likely is it that this will happen? I think that's about a 60. And how bad would it be if it happened? How bad would it be if I have the thought that I'm insane and that I can't trust my gut? Uh, 70 out of 100. All right, now, uh, the third thing. What's a third worst thing that could happen in this situation? Depersonalization and derealization. And having the thought, I can't, I don't know what's real. That one's actually been coming up a lot. Because, fuck, yeah. Um, I've been dealing with a lot of depersonalization and derealization since I've started doing exposure. I mean, I was dealing with it before, but now I'm actually tracking it because I fill out these forms. We're going to do a quick definition of what derealization and depersonalization is. Okay, this is from the Mayo Clinic. Depersonalization and derealization disorder occurs when you persistently or repeatedly have the feeling that you're observing yourself from outside your body, or you have a sense that things around you aren't real, or both. Feelings of depersonalization and derealization can be very disturbing and may feel like you're living in a dream. Many people have a passing experience of depersonalization and derealization at some point, but when these things keep occurring or never completely go away and they interfere with your ability to function, it's considered depersonalization-derealization disorder. This disorder is more common in people who've had traumatic experiences. Here are some symptoms of depersonalization. Feelings that you're an outside observer of your thoughts, feelings, your body, or parts of your body. For example, as if you were floating in air above yourself. 
feeling like a robot or that you're not in control of your speech or movements. The sense that your body, legs, and arms appear distorted, enlarged, or shrunken, or that your head is wrapped in cotton. Emotion or physical numbness of your senses or responses to the world around you. A sense... Oh, I didn't know about this one. Oh my god. Oh no. A sense that your memories lack emotion and that they may or may not be your own memories. Oh god. Honestly, sometimes I feel like I'm not a real person. I think I'm just a collection of trauma responses dressed up in a trench coat <laughs> and trying to sneak into a movie theater. God, that's that is very it's validating. It's nice when somebody else it describes my experience that effectively because that's exactly what I feel like and it sucks. Here's some symptoms of derealization. Feelings of being alienated from or unfamiliar with your surroundings. For example, like you're living in a movie or a dream. Feeling emotionally disconnected from people you care about as if you're separated by a glass wall. Surroundings that appear distorted, blurry, colorless, two-dimensional, or artificial. Or a heightened awareness and clarity of your surroundings. Distortions in perception of time, such as recent events feeling like distant past, or distortions of distance and the size and shape of objects. So, yeah, I'd, a lot of times I describe my experiences like I feel like I'm a ghost, where like I'm saying a thing and people aren't reacting to the thing I'm saying, or they're reacting like they are reacting to the fact that I said a thing and they're not reacting to what I actually said. So I feel like a ghost. I Sometimes I feel like somebody's turned my mic off. Like I'm talking, but no one can hear me. Yeah, it's largely a result of invalidation. I mean, it's completely a result of invalidation. Like I don't trust my own experiences as being real. Ooh, there's a great thing. This is a book that I've mentioned in the past. I'm going to be reading just a couple sentences from Cognitive Behavioral Treatment of Borderline Personality Disorder. This is a book written by Marsha Linehan, who also developed DBT. This is on page 49 in a section called Borderline Personality Disorder and Invalidating Environments. I myself don't have borderline personality disorder. It's just this section that felt like a targeted missile straight at, like, the core of my experience is like, this describes so many things. Um, so characteristics of invalidating environments. I'm, I'm going to be reading just kind of like the highlights here, literally, because these are the parts that I've highlighted. And Marshall Linehan uses gendered language in this. I'm going to turn it into gender neutral. So instead of saying she or her, I will say they or them. Invalidation has two primary characteristics. First, it tells the individual that they are wrong in both their description and their analyses of their own experiences, particularly in their views of what is causing their own emotions, beliefs, and actions. I'm going to read that again because fuck. Invalidation has two primary characteristics. First, it tells the individual that they are wrong in both their description and their analyses of their own experiences, particularly in their views of what is causing their own emotions, beliefs, and actions. So if I say, I feel sad, somebody who's invalidating would say, oh, but you'll be fine. It's okay. Or why are you feeling sad? Are you a wimp? Or like, you don't feel sad. You're just blowing everything out of proportion. 
And then the second characteristic of an invalidating environment is an invalidating environment attributes this person's experiences to socially unacceptable characteristics or personality traits. So like that wimp thing is a great example. If, I, if I'm sad about something and someone says, no, you're fine, don't be a wimp. Like they're attributing my sadness to a socially unacceptable characteristic, being wimpy. Don't be upset, you'll be fine. Stop being stubbornly negative. That's another one I get from my parents. You're just focusing on the negative. If you weren't so pessimistic, dot, dot, dot. Because pessimism is a socially unacceptable characteristic or personality trait. Like that's not okay. At least it's not okay in my family. So here are some consequences of an invalidating environment. There are four of them, and I'm just going to read the highlights here. The consequences of invalidating environments are as follows. First, by failing to validate emotional expression, an invalidating environment does not teach the child to label private experiences, including emotions, in a manner that's normative in their larger social community for the same or similar experiences, nor is the child taught to modulate emotional arousal. So I'm going to say that again. First, by failing to validate emotional expression, an invalidating environment does not teach the child to label private experiences, including emotions, in a manner normative in their larger social community for the same or similar experiences, nor is the child taught to modulate emotional arousal. So an example here is if I, like, I'm walking down the hall and I stub my toe really, really hard, I might like bend over or like squat down and like grab my foot and be breathing really heavily. I might start crying if I hit it just right. And that's normal. Like it is normal to stub your toe and feel pain. <laughs> like it's painful when we stub our toes. Somebody who comes along and says, you're fine. It wasn't that big of a deal. See, you're okay. Look at your foot. There's no mark on it. it you're fine. You're fine. That's teaching me that my reaction of experiencing pain is not normal. It teaches me that the way I want to describe my experience, like, hey, that was really painful. That hurt a lot. That that's not normal either. It teaches me that I should be fine, even in the face of this very painful thing. And basically acts as kind of like a, like putting a lid on a boiling pot of water. It's like, no, we're just going to, we're going to suppress that. We're going to put a lid on it. And what that also does then is it never teaches me how to modulate my emotions. I'm just told not to have them. So I'm never told how to have them in an effective way, how to regulate my emotions when I have them. I'm just told don't have them. Okay, so a second consequence of an invalidating environment is by oversimplifying the ease of solving life's problems, the environment does not teach the child to tolerate distress or to form realistic goals and expectations. Oh, your boyfriend just broke up with you? Get over it. It's fine. You'll be fine. Like, it's been a month. Why are you still sad? Cheer up. Like, all of those things are sending the message that it's not okay for me to have the emotions that I'm having and that it is easy for me to stop having my emotions. Like, just stop being sad. Just get over it. Focus on the positive. All of these things are treated as, like, quick fixes. And what that would do for somebody being on the receiving end of that invalidation, it tells them to just suppress their emotions, which means they never develop the ability to actually tolerate their emotions or to like 
have realistic goals. Because if you're told never to feel your emotions, don't you then have the expectation, oh, my boyfriend just broke up with me and it's been a week. I should be fine now. I shouldn't be upset anymore. I shouldn't be sad anymore. I should move on. It's like an expectation that, hey, after a breakup, I should be fine within a week. That's not realistic. Okay, a third consequence of an invalidating environment. Within an invalidating environment, extreme emotional displays and or extreme problems are often necessary to provoke a helpful environmental response. I've used this example before. The kid goes up to their mom and says, hey, I'm hungry, I'd like some lunch. And the mom goes, great, I'll make you a sandwich. What that communicates to the kid is, hey, if you're hungry, in order to get your need met, all you need to do is tell me that you're hungry and ask for food. But the flip side is, if the child goes up to their mom and says, hey, I'm hungry, I'd like some lunch, and the mom says, you're fine. And then the kid's like, no, really, I'm really hungry. I'd like some lunch. And the mom's like, no, you're fine. And then the kid's like, mom, like, I haven't eaten in ages. I'm starving. And the mom's like, no, you're fine. And then the kid starts screaming, I can't handle this. I'm so, so hungry. And they start crying. And if at that point the mom goes, oh, okay, I'll make you a sandwich. What that has done is it trains the kid that in order to get their need met, they need to start crying and screaming. There's a threshold that I have to cross in order to get my needs met. Like I have to perform my emotions above that threshold or else people won't believe me. Like that's the thought that I have. And then the fourth consequence of an invalidating environment is that such an environment fails to teach the child when to trust their own emotional and cognitive responses as reflections of valid interpretations of individual and situational events. So again, I stub my toe. I'm crying because I'm in a lot of pain. And somebody coming over and saying, you're fine. See, there's like no mark on your toe. You're fine. What that communicates to me is that you don't actually know when you're in pain. You don't actually know when things are a big deal. Like you're overreacting here. So stop overreacting. Be this other way. And a lifetime of invalidation there will, I mean, that's what causes my depersonalization or my derealization is like, I don't think my gut knows anything. I don't think it's trying to tell me anything. I don't think it's accurate. I don't pay attention to it when it is trying to tell me something. So getting back to my exposure form here, the third thing I have listed under what's the worst thing that could happen as I'm reading my parents' newsletter. The third thing I added was depersonalization or derealization, having the thought that I don't know what's real. And that's pretty likely, I'm going to say 50 out of 100. And how bad would it be if this happened? 70 out of 100. Because it's, it's really fucking destabilizing. Like I actually have the experience fairly routinely of that I'm invisible. I kind of liken it to a check engine light. Like my gut, my intuition, my, my wise mind, all of this stuff, they're all haywire. I used to have a car that always had the check engine line on. Um, and I would go and get it checked out. And repeatedly, the mechanic would say, it's your light. The light is broken. You should fix your light. Because the problem with having a light that's on all the time is that it stays on when nothing's wrong. And it stays on when there is something wrong, which makes it impossible to distinguish between something's wrong with my engine and nothing's wrong with my engine. <sighs> So 
So this depersonalization, derealization component is really confusing because I keep having the thought, I'm not real, my memories aren't real, and it makes it really hard to distinguish when they are. <sighs> so next section of the exposure form here is checking in before I actually read the newsletter. What are my subjective units of distress? Like how, how much in distress am I am right now? I would say 30 out of 100. Urge to commit suicide is zero. Urge to self-harm is zero. Urge to quit therapy is zero. Urge to use substances is zero. Dissociation is like 10 right now. And I will go back and put in values for all of those things I just listed for my peak, like in the middle of doing my exposure, like the, the point at which my distress is the highest. And then I'll also do them for afterwards. Here we have specific emotions and radical acceptance for a scale of zero to a hundred before I start exposure. Uh, my sadness is zero. My fear is I'm feeling, I can feel some anxiety. Um, 20 anger is 10 guilt is zero. Shame is zero. Disgust 30 joy is zero. Radical acceptance is zero. Okay. So now I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to read this newsletter. This is the one from February of 2016. I'm noticing that I keep like going in and out of actually paying attention to what I'm reading. My eyes are moving across the words and then I'll get to the end of a paragraph and go, I don't know that I paid any attention to any of that. Yeah, I'm having some thoughts. Okay, so I got through the newsletter and now I need to do acceptance to that. So what am I doing acceptance to? That's a great question. Uh, the facts. So I'm going to be reading off of Distress Tolerance Handout 11. What is radical acceptance? Radical means all the way, complete and total. It is accepting in your mind, your heart, and your body. It's when you stop fighting reality, stop throwing tantrums because reality is not the way you want it, and let go of bitterness. What has to be accepted? And again, this is Distress Tolerance Handout 11. There are four things listed. Number one, reality is as it is. The facts about the past and the present are the facts, even if you don't like them. Two, there are limitations on the future for everyone, but only realistic limitations need to be accepted. Three, Everything has a cause, including events and situations that cause you pain and suffering. So that's another thing that has to be accepted. The fourth thing that has to be accepted is that life can be worth living even with painful events in it. So what has to be accepted are the facts. So what are the facts of this newsletter? Well, the facts are that they, they wrote the newsletter. That is a fact. The facts are that they they said what they said in the newsletter. It is a fact that they said what they said. It is also a, a fact that I have strong disgust reactions. It is a fact that I have judgments, because I do. <laughs> now, those judgments themselves may not be facts. Like, if I have the judgment that all of it's bullshit, like, that's a judgment. It is a fact that I'm having that judgment. And that judgment doesn't necessarily point to a fact. 
It isn't a fact that the contents of the newsletters are bullshit. It's a thought that I was having. It's a fact that I had that judgment. It's not that it's bullshit. It's hypocrisy. That's what I'm having judgments around. And a quick aside here, some things that are not facts. Assumptions, predictions, which are future-based. Judgments, so our evaluations of a thing. None of those are facts. Facts are things like how I feel. It is a fact that I have a thought or an urge or a body sensation. Like my brain is doing something. My body is doing something. Those are facts. And again, like I keep going back to predictions about the future are not facts. So I don't need to accept what the future looks like. What I need to accept is the past and the present because I can't change either of those things. The past is already done. The present, as soon as I finish saying the sentence, will now become the past. The only thing I can change is the future. So that means I need to accept the things I cannot change, the past and the present. And I notice myself getting a lot of my anger and like my my kind of righteous indignation, my my tantruminess is when I think that I can change the present, that I want the present to be a different way. And so I will put all my emotional energy towards this, towards changing the present, which I cannot change, which is why I get this experience of hopelessness and despair and everything. It basically turns off my ability to problem solve because I actually cannot change this present moment. I can change the next moment. But right now, this present moment, by the time I finish saying the sentence, will be over. Now it's in the past and I can't change that. It's all very trippy. But yeah, a lot of my suffering comes from thinking that I can change the present. And once I start putting all my energy into, but I got to fix this, I got to change the present, it means I stop problem solving. If I can accept that this is what is happening right this second, and there's nothing I can do about that, then the next question becomes, okay, well, given that I don't want this current present moment to persist into the future, given that I would like it to be different in the future, what do I need to do? Really what it does is like radical acceptance requires an honest examination of where I'm at, an honest examination of the thoughts that I'm having, of the emotions that I'm having, because ignoring any of those, rejecting any of those, denying any of those, they're going to come out sideways anyway. It does nothing to actually address the current moment. I'm trying to, I'm trying to suppress my emotional reaction which always to me is reminiscent of if you've ever been in a pool with like a beach ball and you get on top of the beach ball and try to like get it underneath the water, it shoots out of the water with a tremendous amount of force and suppressed and denied emotions and thoughts are, at least in my experience, like that. The more I suppress them, the stronger they get, the more pressure builds up and the more likely it is that they will come out in ways that don't work at times that don't work. Yeah, acknowledging them. It's super, the whole thing, fuck. It's super counterintuitive, right? That acknowledging an emotion or a feeling would have that emotion dissipate quickly. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. And yet that is what works. So I want to practice some acceptance here. What am I gonna practice accepting? I'm gonna write this down so I don't forget. Okay, so here's what I wrote down for starters what I need to accept. And these are just, don't like just, these are facts. These are only facts and nothing else. One, 
need to accept that my parents sent this newsletter because they did. They did send it. (laughs) I got it. So did other people. Two, I need to accept that my parents wrote what they did in the newsletter. They wrote down the contents of the newsletter. That is fact. The newsletter says what it says. That is fact. Three, I need to accept that I have, that I had a strong disgust reaction to reading the newsletter because I did. I did have a strong disgust reaction. Four, I need to accept that I had the thought that the contents of the newsletter are hypocritical, that there are certain phrases, sentences that I read and then had the thought that's hypocritical because that's what happens. Now, I don't have to accept that the contents are hypocritical. All I have to do is accept that I had the thought the contents of this newsletter are hypocritical. And the fifth thing I came up with is I need to accept that I had the thought that the contents of the newsletter are manipulative, which isn't to say I'm accepting that the contents are manipulative. I'm accepting that I had the thought the contents of this newsletter are manipulative and not all the way through. There's like sentences here and there. I'm like, that feels like manipulation or that feels like hypocrisy. And it is a fact that I had those thoughts while reading those sentences of the newsletter. Those are facts. Okay, so let's do... Some radical acceptance step-by-step, shall we? This is Distress Tolerance Handout 11B. Step one, observe that you are questioning or fighting reality. And then an example of that is, it shouldn't be this way. I am fighting reality. I'm also questioning reality. Like I question that those are thoughts I had. I question that discusses the emotion that I had. And... I'm noticing myself judging what my parents wrote in the newsletter, noticing myself judge the way they phrase things, the things they chose to include. And a judgment is wanting things to be a different way. They should have done it differently. That's a judgment. For more information about judgments, please see Mindfulness Handout 5. So Mindfulness Handout 5 is how to be mindful There's another section, Mindfulness Handout 4, which is the what skills. What do you do to be mindful? And those are observe, describe, and participate. How do you do those things? How do you observe and describe and participate in a mindful way? You do those things on Mindfulness Handout 5. You do those things non-judgmentally, one mindfully, and effectively. So put it all together now. What do you do to be mindful? Observe non-judgmentally. Observe one mindfully and observe effectively. Describe non-judgmentally, describe one mindfully, and describe effectively. And participate non-judgmentally, participate one mindfully, and participate effectively. So judgments are things like good or bad, should or shouldn't, fair or unfair, right or wrong, black or white, always or never, all or nothing, name calling, calling someone an asshole is a judgment, calling someone a jerk is a judgment. And these are just I'm sharing my notes and my thoughts about this. These are the list I just read off is not included in the actual uh, DPT manual. The problem with judgments are that they're not based on fact. They're based on our interpretations. Another problem is they're immutable. They don't tend to change. Our judgments typically are carved into stone and very hard to change. And another problem with a judgment prevents understanding of myself, of others, and of reality. My DBT instructor defined judgment as aggressive certainty. And I really, really like that. So I'm noticing back on distress tolerance handout 11B, 
practicing radical acceptance step by step, I am noticing myself fighting reality, like judging that that is the newsletter that my parents sent. I'm judging and rejecting that they wrote down like the contents that they wrote. I'm noticing myself judging those. I'm judging myself for having a strong disgust reaction. I'm judging myself for labeling the contents of their newsletter hypocritical. And I'm judging myself for having the thought that the contents of the newsletter it was manipulative. And it's really less their words and more the, the verses of the Bible that they're quoting. I have thoughts about those verses as being hypocritical or manipulative too, which is great fun. So yes, step one of accepting reality. I am observing that I am judging and rejecting and fighting the reality of reading that newsletter. Okay, step two in practicing radical acceptance step-by-step is remind yourself that the unpleasant reality is just as it is and cannot be changed. This is what happened. (sighs) The unpleasant reality is as it is and cannot be changed. Okay, so they sent the newsletter. That is what happened and it cannot be changed because it's in the past. It happened in February of 2016. The contents of the newsletter are as they are and cannot be changed. That is what happened. That is what's the, what the contents of the newsletter is. And because it was sent out to all these people, it cannot be undone. Um, remind myself that the reality that I had a strong disgust reaction to reading the newsletter, that is the reality and it cannot be changed. I'm having a strong disgust reaction right now, actually. And that is the reality and also cannot be changed because that is the reaction I'm having right this second. I can change how I feel in the future. I cannot change how I feel right this second because now it's in the past. What the fuck is time? What is time? It's okay, Joy. Focus, focus. Remind myself that the unpleasant reality that I had the thought that the contents of the newsletter were manipulative and hypocritical. Those are the thoughts that I had and that cannot be changed. Step three of practicing radical acceptance step-by-step is the hard one for me. Remind yourself that there are causes for the reality. Acknowledge that some sort of history led up to this very moment. Consider how people's lives have been shaped by a series of factors. Notice that, given these causal factors and how history led up to this moment, this reality had to occur just this way. This is how things happened. So... Of the five things that I listed that I want to practice accepting here, remind myself that there are causes for the reality that my parents sent this newsletter. There is a cause. There's a reason that they sent this newsletter. I want to practice reminding myself that there are causes for the contents that my parents wrote in the newsletter. There's a reason they wrote what they wrote. I'm practicing reminding myself that there are causes for why I felt disgust. There are causes for why I currently feel disgust. Namely, I'm having the thought that I need to feel disgust. It it would be bad to not feel disgust. It is important that I feel disgust because if I didn't, I'm having the thought that that would mean I'm accepting and liking what they wrote. Acceptance is not liking joy. Accepting doesn't mean I like it. I'm happy about it. I'm overjoyed about it. I want it to continue. That is not what acceptance is. So I'm practicing reminding myself that there are causes for my feelings of disgust around reading this newsletter. I am practicing accepting that there are causes for my thoughts 
that the newsletter is hypocritical and manipulative. There are causes for those thoughts. There are reasons that I had those thoughts. So that's the first clause of step three. Remind yourself that there are causes for the reality. Acknowledge that some sort of history led up to this very moment. So I'm practicing acknowledging that some sort of history led my parents to sending out this newsletter. I'm practicing acknowledging that some sort of history led my parents to include what they included in that newsletter, a significant portion of which are actual verses from the Bible, which means then I can also practice acknowledging that some sort of history led up to those verses being included in the Bible. I don't like that one. Nope. A lot of disgust coming up there. I am practicing acknowledging that some sort of history led up to my parents writing what they wrote in the newsletter. I'm practicing acknowledging that some sort of history led up to those verses being included in the Bible in the first place. I'm going to do some willing hands here. I started to just just now wring my hands together, like kind of as a nervous, like self-soothe thing. And so I'm going to do some willing hands. I'm going to adjust my posture and sit up super tall. And I'm going to open up my palms, like face up, palm up, I guess, and breathe. I am practicing acknowledging that some sort of history led up to my parents, including what they included in that newsletter. I am practicing acknowledging that some sort of history led up to those verses being included in the Bible. I am practicing acknowledging that I am having disgust come up. I am acknowledging that disgust is coming up right now. One of the things that a lot of people recommend is deep breathing for mindfulness, like getting centered and whatnot. I really don't like deep breathing. To me, it feels like hyperventilation, like in for five, out for five, in for five, out for five, or whatever count. Um, It's too fast. I prefer box breathing, and I'll put a link to a video of that um, in the description. But like, I prefer in for five, hold for five, out for five, hold for five, repeat. And sometimes I can get up even higher. I can get up to 10 on a good day. But that's really slows my breathing down. Just doing deep in and exhalations doesn't slow my breathing down enough. It makes me feel lightheaded. So, all right. So the next clause of step three here is consider how people's lives have been shaped by a series of factors. And notice that given these causal factors and how history led up to this moment, this reality had to occur just this way. This is how things happened. My layperson's interpretation of that is, given all the dominoes that came before, it was inevitable that this current domino fell, which is not to say that all these future dominoes are going to fall. I can do something about future dominoes falling. I can pull a a section of dominoes out, and now the rest of them won't fall. But standing here in this present moment, given all of the dominoes that came before, it is inevitable that this current domino fell. Given the pattern of the dominoes from before, given the spacing between them, given gravity and everything else, given that all those dominoes fell, it is inevitable that the one in this present moment fell. So I am practicing accepting that my parents' lives have been shaped by a series of factors. I am practicing accepting that 
My life has been shaped by a series of factors. Fucking hell, guys. What is going on? Okay? Like, uh, I haven't actually practiced this with such granular detail before. Like, I read step three all at once and then apply it all at once to whatever I'm practicing accepting. I've never done it like one clause at a time to each component of my acceptance at a time. And I'm noticing myself like internally giving up resistance. I really don't like this. I don't like this at all. Okay, let me do some observe and describe here to explain what's happening right now. So before we got into acceptance, I observed that I had all these judgments, right? They shouldn't have sent out this newsletter. They shouldn't have included the content that they included. They shouldn't have included those verses. Those verses should not have been included in the Bible. The Bible shouldn't say that. Like all of those were judgments that I was having. And something just shifted in what I just said, that my parents' lives have been shaped by a series of factors. My life has been shaped by a series of factors. People who publish the Bible, their lives were shaped by a series of factors. The people, the committee, whoever decided what goes in the Bible, their lives are shaped by a series of factors. The people that those Bible verses are attributed to, their lives were shaped by a series of factors. What's annoying here, this is really annoying, I'm experiencing annoyance, is like if I get all of that, then it's like, well, of course, this is what would happen. I had a moment at some friends of mine's home recently. I was working at their dining room table and I needed more room, so I pushed something further away from me. And it was, I think it was my laptop, actually, which was open. Or maybe it was a box. It was something with some height to it. And I pushed it away so I could have more space. And because the thing that I pushed away had height, I couldn't see what was behind it, so I didn't see that there was a mug of water. And as I pushed the thing away, the mug of water fell off the table, landed on the floor, spilled water everywhere. And I noticed myself have all these judgments of like, I'm mad that there's water everywhere, so I need to go clean that up. And there shouldn't be water anywhere because I shouldn't have spilled the mug. And I was practicing like low-grade acceptance in this moment. I'm like, okay, here's a chance to practice it. Okay, could it have gone a different way? Well, I should have gotten up and checked that there was nothing behind my laptop or this box or whatever that I was pushing out of the way. I should have checked that there was nothing behind it. Okay, well, why didn't I do that? Because I didn't think there was anything behind it. <laughs> like I didn't have the thought in that moment, you should check what's behind that box or that laptop to make sure there's nothing there. I didn't have that thought. How could I, without having that thought, how could I have gotten up and checked? Now, I would like this to not happen in the future. So I would like to put in some protocols, which may just be me remembering that moment of like, Ugh, now I have to clean up water. That's a pretty strong moment. So now I know to check in the future. So it can go a different way in the future. It can't, could not have gone a different way than the way it happened that time. So that, that's an example of like actually looking at what led up to this moment. Why didn't it go a different way? And asking those questions like with, without judgment, like, well, why didn't you go and check that there was something behind your laptop or your box or whatever? Oh, I didn't have the thought. Well, why didn't you have the thought? I, I don't know. I it didn't occur to me to have that thought. Well, why didn't it occur to you? It just didn't. Okay, well, given all of that, could it have gone a different way? No. <laughs> no, it couldn't have. So this is what I'm noticing. This is why I'm getting annoyed. Because like, 
I need those judgments. I want those judgments. They do something for me. Like the Bible should say different things or my parents should include different things in their newsletter or my parents shouldn't have sent out that newsletter. All of those judgments are doing something for me, which is a great question to ask a judgment, by the way. What are you trying to do for me, judgment? And I have an answer. God, I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. So I have the thought that there are components of the Bible that are harmful, either by themselves, like the actual verses cause harm, or by the interpretation or the interaction of people who believe the Bible, like they're causing harm by that interpretation or by their interaction with those verses. So if I have the thought that there is harm being done, it makes sense that I would judge those verses and be like, that's not a helpful verse. That verse can cause a lot of harm because I do not want harm to be done. Like I can see how those verses can be taken out of context. I can see how those verses can be like cranked up to 11 and applied across all things always and how that application would cause a lot of harm. So my experience of those verses is that they're really harmful and I would like them to say something different. (laughs) So my judgments around both the inclusion of those verses in the newsletter and also those verses themselves My judgment is trying to protect me. My judgments are trying to do something for me. So it makes sense that I would have those judgments. So getting back to step three, practicing radical acceptance step by step, consider how my life has been shaped by a series of factors. It makes sense that I would have disgust come up. It makes sense that I would have thoughts that it's hypocritical or manipulative. Like those thoughts come from somewhere. Like there's a lot of baggage there. (laughs) I'm kind of covering the same ground over and over again here because I really want to get this. So I have reminded myself that there are causes for my parents sending the newsletter, for what they wrote in the newsletter. I'm practicing reminding myself that there are causes for the strong disgust reaction that I had. I am practicing reminding myself that there are causes for the thoughts I had that the contents of the newsletter were manipulative and hypocritical. I'm practicing acknowledging that some sort of history led up to my parents sending that newsletter. I'm practicing acknowledging that some sort of history led up to them including what they included in that newsletter. I'm practicing acknowledging that some sort of history led up to me having the emotion of disgust. I am practicing acknowledging that some sort of history led up to me having the thought that the contents of the newsletter were hypocritical or manipulative. I'm practicing considering how my parents' lives have been shaped by a series of factors. I am practicing considering how my life has been shaped by a series of factors. And this is the last clause of step three here. Notice that given these causal factors and how history led up to this moment, this reality had to occur just this way. So I'm practicing noticing that given these causal factors and how history led up to this moment, my parents sending this newsletter had to occur just this way. I am practicing noticing that given these causal factors that have shaped my parents' life and how my parents' history led up to this moment, that newsletter getting sent had to occur just that way. I am practicing noticing that given my causal factors, the factors that have shaped my life and how my history has led up to this moment, that my reality of reading the newsletter, of feeling disgust, and having the thoughts that the contents of the newsletter are hypocritical and manipulative, that reality had to occur just that way, just this way. Given my parents' history, 
given their experiences, given how their brains are wired, given what their beliefs are around their faith, they were going to write and send the newsletter just that way. And given my history and the things that have shaped me and my beliefs and my experiences, my reaction to reading the newsletter, my disgust and my thoughts about hypocrisy and manipulation, those had to occur just that way, given everything that came before for me. (sighs) And it just sucks the fucking anger right out of me. I'm annoyed by it. Like, I want to be angry. I want to to judge because, again, it does something for me. I have the thought that my judgments are protecting me. It doesn't mean that they're actually protecting me. I have the thought that they are. They are doing something for me. And what they're doing for me may be exclusively in the short term. (laughs) Because one of the causal factors for me is that I don't trust my own experience. I don't trust my gut. I don't trust that I'm real. I don't trust that my emotions are valid. So I don't have the skill of validating myself. I have some skill. It's not a lot of skill. It's a baby skill. And given that I don't have a great command of that skill for myself, it feels very dangerous to me to be around beliefs that differ from mine. Like I don't have the practice of holding both of those things as valid, like another person's beliefs and my beliefs as valid at the same time. I don't have the practice of holding another person's experience and my experience as valid at the same time. Typically what happens is if I hear somebody else's experience and it differs from my own, I will use that person's experience to invalidate my own experience and undermine myself. And that's, that is dangerous. I mean, literally invalidation is what causes my derealization and my depersonalization. I don't think I'm real. I don't think my experience is real. I don't think it matters. I don't think I matter. Like all of this shit. So it makes total sense that I would use judgments, that I would invalidate, that I would judge what my parents believe and what they're including in their newsletter because I don't currently have the ability to hold their faith without invalidating myself. (laughs) Of course, given that I don't have that skill, I would use judgment. Because that is that is a skill I have. I mean, I don't know if judgment is a skill. It's a thing I know how to do. And it does serve a function, in the short term at least. And part of the problem with it is that it if I can spend all my time judging other people, then I never have to learn how to validate myself. And it makes sense that I would prefer judgment. I would prefer that tool to the tool of validating myself. Because A, I don't have the skill of validation. So it's like... What would you like to chop down this tree? A butter knife or a chainsaw? I'm like, well, I would love a chainsaw. I'm like, you don't have one. All you have is the butter knife. So what are you going to use? I'm like, well, I guess I'll use the tool that I have. It's not ideal. And the tool that I have is better than no tool at all. So I've been using non-judgment as, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. All I have is judgment. Like I don't have the skill of self-validation. So again, all of this makes sense, right? And it's not effective. Like my judging them doesn't actually get me any closer to validating myself. It's, it's what I use to validate myself. It's, it's like a jerry-rigged version of it. It's what I use to prevent invalidation of myself. Um, if I can get out ahead of it, I can prevent this thing from invalidating myself because I don't have that skill of self-validation. <sighs> 
So we're going to jump to step four here. That's not a jump. That is literally the next step. We're going to take a step <laughs> to, to step four. Practice accepting with the whole self, mind, body, spirit. Be creative in finding ways to involve your whole self. Use accepting self-talk, but also consider using relaxation, mindfulness of your breath, half smiling and willing hands while thinking about what feels unacceptable. Prayer, going to a place that helps bring you to acceptance or imagery. So those are some ways to get involved with your whole self. And doing this podcast actually is kind of me practicing using accepting self-talk because I'm practicing accepting my own experience and I'm doing it aloud. So it's self-talk. Brilliant joy, brilliant deduction right there. I've also been sitting here doing willing hands. If you're new to the podcast, first off, welcome. Now we're like halfway in. Willing hands is a mindfulness technique. No, it's not. It's a distress tolerance technique. Um, It's on distress tolerance handout 14. And basically it's, I have a picture of it on my Instagram feed at let's therapize, but it's kind of like if you were like wait staff and you were carrying two plates and on each palm and you're trying to fit through a really narrow space. So like your palms are open, your shoulders are kind of open to the side. Part of what that does, willing hands, why it's effective is it takes my body out of doing what it does automatically. Like if I get upset, I'll, you know, scowl or I'll, you know, clench muscles. If I'm sad or afraid, I will kind of fold in on myself. And doing that purposeful, intentional opening of my body, it's opposite to what I naturally am inclined to do, which is fold in. And it also forces me to pay attention to what's going on in my body and choose it rather than letting it run on autopilot. Because as we have learned, in all of the discussion that I've done about wheel ruts in past episodes, like those ruts are great if they go where you want to go. (laughs) They become a problem when I want to go someplace else and those ruts are going in a different direction. So a lot of my emotions and a lot of my thoughts run on autopilot. They run in their ruts. They just stick to what they know. And if I want that to be different, if I want to get to a a different destination, I first off have to be aware that I'm in a rut, that I'm just like, that's my machinery that's running. Hey, look, that's the thought I'm having. Observing it first and then wanting it to be a different way, choosing to be a different way. And I know that if I let my body just fold in on itself, like it will send messages to my brain of like, oh yeah, this is really dangerous. Oh yeah, this is really scary. This is really sad. And it kind of creates this positive feedback loop. Of now my brain is doing thoughts that are consistent with being sad or being afraid or whatnot. And I'm like, in my room right now, I am objectively safe. I am not in danger. So I am choosing to open up my body posture and practice accepting back to distress tolerance handout 11B. Practice accepting that my parents' lives have been shaped by a series of factors and that they have their own history. And given these factors and given this history, it was inevitable that they send out that newsletter and that they include the contents that they included. I am practicing accepting that I have history and that my life has been shaped by a series of factors. And that given that history and given those factors, that it was inevitable that I would have a strong disgust reaction to this newsletter. It was inevitable that I would have the thoughts but it's hypocritical and manipulative. I, my body is wigging out right now. This is so interesting. This has happened before when I'm processing a disgust 
my stomach, my stomach gets upset and, and whatnot, but it is like actively gurgling now. Let's take a look for a second at what the physical sensations are for disgust. At the end of the DP, well, it's not the end. In the DBT manual, there's an entire section on emotion regulation. And one of my favorite, most useful handouts is emotion regulation handout six. Each emotion gets its own page. And there's, I think, 10 or 11. Yeah, there's 10 emotions. So the emotions that are included are anger, disgust, envy, fear, happiness, jealousy, love, sadness, shame, and guilt. And there's other emotions clearly that we have that aren't included in these. These are kind of the big 10. But yeah, each page, so I'm going to do the one for disgust here. Each page describes synonyms for that emotion. So we've got synonyms for disgust. Each page also has prompting events for feeling that emotion like an event. The event itself will cause disgust, not our thoughts about it, the event itself. So here's a list of prompting events for feeling disgust. And then there's interpretations of events that will prompt that emotion. So my thoughts about a thing, my thoughts about an event that will trigger disgust in this example. That each page has the biological changes and experiences of that emotion. So biological changes and experiences of disgust, what it feels like in our bodies. That each page has expressions and actions of that emotion. So expressions and actions of disgust are urges, like what it would look like to somebody standing on the outside, how they could tell that I was having a disgust reaction. And then finally, each emotion has a section on the echoes or after effects of disgust, like how it impacts us throughout the day. So for disgust, some synonyms include abhorrence, antipathy, aversion, condescension, Contempt, dislike, derision, disdain, distaste, hate, loathing, repugnance, repulsion, resentment, revolted, scorn, sickened, spite, and vile. Like if I were to get more specific than disgust, the emotion that I was having come up while I was reading this newsletter, there is some revulsion or repulsion aversion, strong aversion, strong dislike, feel sickened. Yeah, those are all accurate. So here are some prompting events for feeling disgust. And if you struggled hearing things about bodily functions, it may be good to skip ahead like 30 seconds or a minute. So here are some prompting events for feeling disgust. Seeing or smelling human or animal waste products, having a person or an animal that is dirty, slimy, or unclean come near you, Tasting something or being forced to swallow something you really don't want. Seeing or being near a dead body. Touching items worn or owned by a stranger, dead person, or disliked person. Observing or hearing about a person who grovels or who strips another person of dignity. Seeing blood or getting blood drawn. Observing or hearing about a person acting with extreme hypocrisy or fawning. Observing or hearing about betrayal, child abuse, racism, or other types of cruelty. Being forced to watch something that deeply violates your own wise mind values. Being confronted with someone who is deeply violating your own wise mind values. Being forced to engage in or watch unwanted sexual contact. Those are events that if we encounter those, like our body will have a reaction, a disgust response, even if we're not having thoughts about it. For me, Robitussin, like the cough syrup, 
when I was a kid and I had to take it. It's been like a half an hour just psyching myself up enough to take it. And then I always had like a sleeve of saltines nearby that I would shovel into my mouth to try to change the flavor afterwards. And then I'd be like burping it up and stuff. And it was just this, I'm having a disgust reaction right now. It's great. It's great. Um, And then we have interpretations of events that prompt feelings of disgust. These are our thoughts about an event, whether it's actually factually true that a thing is happening. If we think that thing is happening, our bodies can have a disgust response. So believing that you're swallowing something toxic, uh, believing that your skin or your mind is being contaminated, believing your own body or body parts are ugly, believing others are evil or are the scum of the earth, or that they disrespect authority or the group. Disapproving or feeling morally superior to another. Extreme disapproval of yourself or your own feelings, thoughts, and behaviors. Judging that a person is deeply immoral or has sinned or violated the natural order of things. Judging someone else's body as extremely ugly. So ugly lives in our interpretation of things. If I have the thought that thing, that person is ugly, that can trigger disgust. So now we get to the crux of the matter, biological changes and experiences of disgust. So this is what it feels like inside my body. So nobody on the outside would know that I'm experiencing these things. Another quick thing, if you have a hard time with bodily fluids, uh, you might want to skip forward 30 seconds. Feelings of nausea, sick feeling, the urge to vomit or vomiting, gagging, choking is another like internal experience of disgust. Having a lump in your throat, Aversion to drinking or eating, intense urge to destroy or get rid of something, urge to take a shower, urge to run away or push away, feeling contaminated, dirty or unclean, feeling mentally polluted, fainting. Like I remember my first sexual assault as an adult. I got home and took a shower and like scrubbed my skin raw. Like I had the urge to like claw out of my own clothes, claw out of my own skin even because I was just so like, ugh. So definitely I'm feeling nausea. It's not like upset stomach. It's just a huge amount of tension in my gut. Um, Like it feels really tense and there's a lot of gurgling going on. So now we have expressions and actions of disgust. So somebody outside of my body looking at me, this is what they would see. And again, if you don't like bodily functions, skip ahead 15 seconds or so. Uh, Vomiting or spitting out, closing your eyes or looking away. Washing, scrubbing, taking a bath, changing your clothes or cleaning spaces, avoiding eating or drinking, pushing or kicking away, running away, treating with disdain or disrespect, stepping over or crowding another person out, physically attacking causes of your disgust, using obscenities or cursing, clenching your hands or fists, frowning or not smiling, mean or unpleasant facial expression, speaking with a sarcastic voice tone, Nose and top lip tightening up, smirking. So I'm definitely experiencing a lot of like, it is just like I can feel it on my face. Like I'm kind of like grimacing, I guess. I think of the character of disgust in Inside Out, voiced by Mindy Kaling. Um, She's green. She's kind of like always like, ew, I'm over it. It's that kind of thing. And the final section here, after effects of disgust or echoes, like how disgust will linger, includes narrowing of attention, ruminating about the situation that's making you feel disgusted, becoming hypersensitive to dirt. Um, Yeah, I do a lot of rumination, actually. 
instances where I have conversations with people where they're displaying sexism or racism or homophobia, like I'll ruminate about that for days. I'm like, oh, I should have said this, or I'll try to figure out exactly the right thing to do or say to convince them that what they think is wrong, (laughs) which is a judgment. Yeah, so definitely feeling the, the ruminating there. So getting back to practicing radical acceptance step-by-step on distress tolerance, handout 11B, practicing accepting with your whole self. Okay, belly, you're all gurgly and rumbly. Let's practice accepting with my belly. Practicing accepting that my parents sent the newsletter. Practicing accepting that my parents wrote what they did in the newsletter. And practicing accepting with my belly that I had a strong disgust reaction and that I had thoughts about hypocrisy and manipulation come up. I'm kind of like holding my hands over my belly right now and kind of breathing into my belly. Basically, I'm just like kind of visualizing, I guess, sending my breath into my belly. And by visualizing, I'm not a great visualizer. Um, Typically, I just kind of imagine like a set of hands or something, like like an express lane. Of like, okay, this breast lane goes directly to our belly. We're going to put some oxygen on it. Down it goes. I'm practicing accepting with my belly that my parents sent that newsletter. I'm practicing accepting with my belly that they wrote what they wrote in the newsletter. I'm practicing accepting with my belly that I had strong disgust emotions come up. And that I had thoughts about the newsletter that it was hypocritical and judgmental. It's the last one, the thoughts about hypocrisy and and manipulation. Like I can feel my stomach actually tense up. Ooh, and now I can feel like a tightness in my throat. I'm practicing accepting with my belly and my throat and my chest that my parents wrote that newsletter. I'm practicing accepting with my belly and my throat and my chest that my parents included the contents that they included in that newsletter. I am practicing accepting with my belly, my chest, and my throat that I had a strong disgust response to that newsletter. I am practicing accepting with my belly, my chest, and my throat that I had strong thoughts that the newsletter was manipulative and hypocritical. So I was breathing kind of slowly there with my hands on those different body parts and just kind of paying attention to those body parts while I was breathing and while I was speaking. Like, I don't know functionally what it means to like send breath into a body part. I don't know what that is, I'm guessing. And for me, the way it ends up showing up is that I typically am just aware of that body part and paying attention to it. Like, oh, I'm holding tension in my chest. Great. So I'm going to breathe and I'm going to be aware of my chest while I'm breathing. And I'm going to send visually my breath into my chest or into my belly or into my throat or into my legs or whatever, wherever I'm holding tension. Like I just envision blood that has a lot of oxygen in it going to those body parts and like bringing oxygen to those body parts and being like, hey, we got you. You're taken care of. You can relax. That's kind of what I picture. Okay, practice opposite action is step five. List all the behaviors you would do if you did accept the facts. Then act as if you have already accepted the facts. 
engage in the behaviors that you would do if you really had accepted. Ah, I don't like this one. Okay, if I accepted that my parents sent the newsletter and that they put what they put in the newsletter and that I do not currently have the skill to be around their beliefs and their faith without invalidating me, without experiencing derealization and depersonalization, without feeling like I'm insane, if I accepted that they have their beliefs and that this is how I experience them talking about their beliefs, boundaries, I would have to put in boundaries. Like given that I don't have the skill to hold my experience as valid while I'm listening to them talk about their experience, I need to stop being around their experience. Is that realistic? Like I live in their home, so I overhear them talking and their faith is really important to them. So it's inevitable that I will hear them talk about their faith, that they will bring it up with me, that I will overhear it. So if I'm going to be exposed to this, what do I need to do? Well, first off, I need to really beef up my skill of self-validation. So I need to practice that a lot. Practice validating myself. Practice being mindful of the thoughts that I'm having. Like they'll talk about how service, serving others is important to them. And the thoughts I will have is, oh my God, like that's really dangerous. Like I'm worried that they put serving other people as being more important than taking care of themselves. I really don't want them to model that for me. They've been modeling that behavior for me for my entire life. And it had a lot of consequences for me. And I'm having to unlearn all of that now. And I'm having to learn boundaries and self-care, all of this. I'm having to learn how to say no. I'm having to learn how to ask for what I want and need. And so, of course, it makes sense that when they talk about service, my brain and my body would experience fear, panic, that I would have the thought that them talking about service, them talking about their own service, It's not even them recommending that I do it. It's them sharing their own experiences. I have the thought that that's dangerous for me because I'm just starting out trying this validation thing for myself, like validating myself. And of course, I would feel afraid of anything that I thought might undo that. So I really want to pay attention to my thoughts and acknowledge that they are thoughts of like, oh, there's a thought. That's a thought I'm having. I can have the thought that their service And their beliefs around service is threatening to me. That's a thought I have. Is it actually threatening to me? I mean, I think it was as a kid. Like, I think it it set up a whole host of really problematic behaviors and ways of thinking and ways of interacting that I'm unlearning now. And I get to unlearn it now. Like, I am not at the effect of their beliefs anymore. I get to have my own. And those real ruts are deep. So it makes sense that I would be cautious. Like, I don't want to get back into those ruts. Like, if I accepted that these are my parents' beliefs, that is what they believe, that is what they say they believe, and that they share their beliefs, they talk about their beliefs in a way that I can hear them. (laughs) I really need to practice self-validation more. Like, a lot. I think that's the skill to, to beef up. And I'm feeling fear in my body. Like, that feels dangerous. Because my history of invalidation, like I don't trust myself. It feels like me validating myself is like the off-brand version of validation, like the Safeway Select brand. I want the real thing. And I have the belief that the real thing only comes from other people, specifically men, because there's just so much, a fuck ton of internalized misogyny going on there. 
So I have the belief that if I validate myself, it will not be as relieving as if I got it from my dad or former partners or whatever. And now I feel sick to my stomach again. Because I guess the thing to do there is to accept that my experience is valid. My self-validation is valid. And that feels really scary. Getting back to step five here of listing the behaviors I would do if I accepted the facts. If I accepted that I don't have the skill of self-validation, I would learn that skill. I would practice that skill. If I accepted that I have strong disgust come up when my parents talk about their faith, if I accepted that I have strong disgust come up, I would, what would I do? I'd do some self-soothing. I'd have some boundaries. Like if we're actually having a conversation, I can, I can tap out. I can say I need to go be alone for a bit. I don't know how to self-soothe for disgust, so I'm going to need to talk to my therapist about that. Being aware of my thoughts, like as thoughts. Hey, I'm having the thought that what they're saying is manipulative. Hey, I'm having the thought that what they're saying is hypocritical. Yeah, look at those thoughts I have. There they go. Of course I'm going to have that thought. And of course that thought would trigger disgust. <laughs> I can feel my body relaxing a little bit. Um, so the next item here for practicing radical acceptance step-by-step step is item six, cope ahead with events that seem unacceptable. Imagine in your mind's eye believing what you don't want to accept. Rehearse in your mind what you would do if you accepted what seems unacceptable. So it seems unacceptable to me that my parents wrote this newsletter, wrote what they did in this newsletter and sent it out. And if I accepted that, I mean, there's really nothing to be done. It's in the past. That's what they said. I don't have to believe it. If I accepted that, that that's what they believe and that's what they say, then I, again, I really need to beef up my self-validation because all this lack of acceptance, all this judgment is training wheels. It's a way for me to survive given that I don't have the skill of self-validation. And it's also preventing me from ever acquiring the skill of self-validation. So if I accepted that that is what they believe and that is what they're sharing with others, then I would validate myself that that is not what I believe. Validate why that's not what I believe. Validate why I have a strong disgust response. Validate my body's reaction. Validate my brain's thoughts. They are all coming from something. They all make sense. They're all trying to tell me something. I was really hoping there was a way that we could go through this whole thing and get to the end and have the final thing be like, yeah, your parents need to shape up <laughs> instead of, oh, there's a skill I need to acquire and practice and use all the time. Brene Brown said that blame is a way to discharge pain and discomfort and blaming my parents for their beliefs, I think, is a thing I do to discharge my pain, my discomfort. It feels nicer and easier and better to judge them than it does for me to look at what skill I need to add to survive and to thrive. Fucking self-validation. God damn it. So what I'm hearing is I need to start practicing that. I want to have a gratitude journal. I think it would be cool to just have like three bullet points a day. What are you thankful for in detail? And it would probably also be good to do a daily self-validation practice. And I don't like that. I don't want to do that. Why don't I want to do that? Ah, uh, fine. Okay, so the thought I just had is 
If I learn to validate myself and I stop being attached to my parents shifting their beliefs or shifting how they talk about their beliefs or anything else, I have the thought that it means they'll never be accountable for the impacts that they had. They'll never acknowledge the impact that they have as though, as though my judging them is going to have them acknowledge the impact that they have. Like, judgment doesn't work. I spent 11 fucking years judging my mom for not knocking instead of getting a lock on my door. I could have spent 11 years with a lock on my door and having her not just walk in. But what I really wanted was for her to hear what I was saying and make adjustments accordingly because what I really want is my voice to matter. I want to be able to say, hey, please don't come into my room. Please don't knock and then walk in without waiting for me to say come in. Please don't just walk in. Please don't talk to me through the door. I want to be able to say all those things and have her hear me. And I did not accept that she wasn't hearing me, that she wasn't remembering, that she wasn't changing her behavior. I didn't accept all of that. And it was the day I did accept, hey, my mom does not have the ability to stop herself from coming in. If I accept that that is so, what would I do? I would get a fucking lock, which is what I did. And I have resistance to that. And I've had resistance to putting a lock on my door for 11 years. And I've had resistance to accepting these beliefs that my parents have, these behaviors that my parents have. I resist accepting those because I really want them to hear me. I want them to hear the impact. I want them to hear the impact that their beliefs about homosexuality was really harmful for me. I want them to understand the impact that their beliefs around gender and sex and all of that were and are really harmful for me. And clearly I have the belief that if I accept that those are their beliefs, what that means is that I'm okay (laughs) that those are their beliefs, which is not what it is. Accepting it doesn't mean I like it. And accepting it is what will allow me to put in skills or boundaries or what have you to protect myself, given that that is their beliefs. And it makes sense that I would resist that. It makes sense that I would want them to change their beliefs because their beliefs hurt me. It makes sense that I would be that attached to finding just the right argument, saying just the right thing to have them change their beliefs. Because I really want my voice to matter. I really want my experience to matter. I want my experience and my pain to matter enough for them to choose to change their behavior. That's what I want. So given that I cannot change their beliefs, and given that currently I live with them, so I even if they're not talking to me, I overhear their beliefs, I think the only thing I can do is process me. Process how I feel about their beliefs, validate it, validate the fuck out of myself, and practice that so that I begin to trust my own experience as being valid. It's kind of like a feedback loop. The more I validate myself, hopefully that trains my brain that my self-validation actually is great. It's not off-brand. It's not like, you know, the disappointment. I guess we'll settle for that because right now my brain believes that validation only matters if it comes from someone else. Fine. Okay, fine. So we're going to practice self-validation. God damn it. So the last four steps here on practicing radical acceptance step-by-step, which is distress tolerance handout 11b. The last four steps here are things that I've kind of been doing as I go. Seven is attend to body sensations as you think about what you need to accept. So like be aware of my body sensations, check in with my body, soothe them. Eight is allow disappointment, sadness, and grief to arise within you, which I have been doing. I've been allowing a lot of disgust and fear 
to come up. And I guess there's disappointment too, that this is how it's gone. And I wanted it to go a different way. Step nine is acknowledge that life can be worth living even when there is pain. And step 10 is do a pros and cons if you find yourself resisting practicing acceptance. Oh, our old friend pros and cons. If you're interested in that, it's on Distress Tolerance Handout 5. It's a two by two grid. I don't think I need to do that today, but I definitely need to acknowledge that life can be worth living even when there is pain. I am practicing accepting that life can be worth living even when there is pain. <sighs> and on my good days, when I am super grounded, I can be aware of the pain and be curious about it. And I'm like, hey, pain, what are you trying to tell me? What are you trying to do for me? What are you alerting me to that I need to take care of? Because that's what happens in our bodies, right? If you have a stomach ache that's super, super intense, and it's because your body's trying to tell you you have appendicitis. You step on a splinter, fucking hurts, because your body's trying to tell you, hey, you have a piece of wood stuck in your foot. Get it out. I think emotional pain serves the same function. Hey, you have a belief that's hurting you. Hey, that rut, that pattern of behavior, that pattern of thoughts, that's hurting you. It makes sense that I have those patterns and those thoughts. And it doesn't work for me in the long term. Ugh. Fine. So, radical acceptance step by step. There you have it, which is the end of my exposure. And now I finally get to answer the questions of how likely it is that the things I was afraid of happening actually happened. So how likely is it that I will have strong feelings of disgust come up and feel sick to my stomach? That was an absolute certainty. Let's say 90. How likely is it that I will have the thought that I'm insane and can't trust my gut? Before it was 60, I would say after doing exposure, it is 70, because I definitely had that thought. How likely is it that I will experience depersonalization or derealization and have the thought, I don't know what's real? That's lower, probably 50. How bad would it be if these things happened? If I had strong feelings of disgust come up? I don't know, 50. How bad would it be if I had the thought that I'm insane and that I can't trust my gut? That one's... 70. How bad would it be if I experienced depersonalization and derealization and that I don't know what's real? 70. So did these things happen? Disgust? Yes. Having the thought that I'm insane and can't trust my gut? Yes. I didn't experience derealization or depersonalization though, so that's a no. All right. Peak levels of the following. Peak suds. What did it get up to? Subjective units of distress. Out of 100, I would say I got up to 50. I didn't have an urge to commit suicide, self-harm, quit therapy, or use substances, and my dissociation was at a 10 at its peak. And now afterwards, my suds are, let's say, 30. And again, zero urge to commit suicide, self-harm, quit therapy, or use substances, and my dissociation is a zero. Specific emotions and radical acceptance before and after. Let's do the after. Sadness out of 100, I would say, is 20. Fear is 10. Anger is 10. Guilt is zero. Shame is zero. Disgust, I'd say 40. Joy is zero. And radical acceptance, I can actually say an amount. Let's say 20. Actually, I think it might be a little higher than that. 30. Okay, and that is my in vivo exposure. Fun stuff. All right, we're going to stop recording now. And welcome back to the present.
So I had a lot of disgust come up just listening back to this recording while I was editing it, specifically when I got to the part about my parents' beliefs around service. I was talking about doing step five of radical acceptance, which is about opposite action. And I felt very strongly sick to my stomach. Like I had a lump in my throat, like I was about to throw up. It was very intense, a lot of disgust. Um, And I mentioned towards the end of the recording that I don't know how to self-soothe for disgust. And since then, haha, I have found some things that are soothing for disgust. Because even though the disgust that came up in reading my parents' newsletter, it had nothing to do with, you know, bodily functions or seeing something gross or icky. But my body reacted with nausea and those uncomfortable, like, lump in my throat sensations. So... I've found some things that are soothing for disgust. Uh, Smelling scents that I love, like tea tree or coconut or chamomile, are all really pleasant. Drinking tea, like chamomile or mint, both of those flavors are really great at soothing upset stomachs. So if you find yourself in a similar situation, highly recommend. Additionally, towards the very, very end, I identified that I needed to practice self-validation. That wasn't towards the end. I identified that over and over and over and over again during the recording. And I also said that I wanted to do a daily gratitude journal practice. I totally forgot that I even said that. So in the seven months between now and the recording you just heard, I haven't done a gratitude journal, but I have been doing a daily validation practice. I actually added it to my daily exposure. So the form that I fill out now actually looks different than the form that I'm posting with this episode. After each exposure practice that I do, and I do two a day, one that's imaginal and one that's in vivo, I answer the question, what is valid about my experience of doing exposure today? And you know what? I fucking hate it. (laughs) And I'm getting better at it. (sighs) But I grumble (laughs) through the whole thing. So there's not much more I can say that I haven't already said 753 times in the recording you just heard because it was very long. Um, So I'm just going to, you know, tap out here and go cough for a while. Yeah. Thank you again for listening. Thank you again to my Patreon subscribers, patrons, people, Anne and Ruth. You guys are rock stars. And uh, if you're interested in supporting me on Patreon or following me on social media or reaching out with questions, queries, whatever, um, the link to all of those are in the description. So I'm still not sure how to end these things, so I'm just going to do my usual thing of ending it super abrupt. This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music is Swan Lake Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, and released on LP by Richmond High Fidelity London Records in 1952.